2: I'm Sheila Murthy, president and founder of the Murthy Law Firm. I'm honored to have each of you participate in today's teleconference on issues dealing with F1 overview. I have with me two of our brilliant and knowledgeable attorneys on F1 issues, Anna Stepanova and Kevin Andrews. In fact, Anna, was a designated school official or international student advisor at a major Midwestern university before becoming an attorney and joining the world famous number one U.S. immigration law firm, the Murthy Law Firm, or Murthy.com as many of you know it. Today's teleconference on F1 issues is the first of a three part series. Uh, today is a broad overview that we're going to touch upon, and the second, sec- uh, second uh, round will be uh, on. Curricular practical training or CPT issues and maintenance of status. And the third one's going to be on optional practical training, OPT, and then transition to H 1B issues. So, without further ado, we're going to start our discussion. But before that, I'm just going to give a very, very broad overview. As most of you probably already have figured out, immigration law is extremely complex, sometimes convoluted. And When you apply, either to extend your F-1 or to change, whether it's to a tourist or another H-1B or F-1 to a different university, you may be required to provide evidence that you have maintained your F-1 status for any future application. And uh, if the USCIS or uh, the SEVP is not convinced, they certainly have the right to request uh, to issue what we call a request for evidence or RFE. And that can determine uh, whether the case will get approved or not approved. So let's start with the common pitfalls. Um, and what are the kinds of issues that the government t- typically
0: questions? Anna, if I can start with you? Thank you, Sheila. I just want to go back to what you started with saying, yes, immigration law is complex. And it's important to understand that most common violations of F1 status result from Students' lack of knowledge, they're not understanding the typical issues, um, uh, the laws and the regulations pertaining to F1 status, which is understandable, but nevertheless, they need to understand that that's what we're going to be discussing today. USCIS often looks for specific violations common to students who are enrolled in schools with not so good reputation. And I just wanted to mention, I several days ago, I spoke to a student who called us for advice. And um, the question that uh, he presented to me was, what if my OPT is not approved, what happens to my status? And I started um, asking him more specific questions about his OPT application and it turned out that the OPT application has not been filed yet. And I asked him why he is so worried about his OPT application um, and why does he think that he will, it will be denied and he said, well, the school that I'm going to is not so good. So, most times students have reason to know that the school is not that they go to, whether it's good, not so good, whether USCS think, uh, thinks of it as a problem school. So, rule number one always make sure that you go to a good, reputable school. Um, going back to the common issues. Uh, what we've seen here is falling below a full load of courses without proper authorization and proper authorization would be uh, permission from the school and the designated school official the DSO Uh, then taking more than one three hour credit online class per semester students uh, cannot take more than three hours uh, the only way that they could do that would be if they meet the full load of classes requirement otherwise so additional online cor- coursework in that uh, situation would be permissible then um, the next problem that we frequently see is authorization for CPT or curricular practical training by the school in the first year uh, and recommendation for optional practical training or OPT after less than one year of full-time study then um, there are some problems with CPT enrollment and CPT authorization A CPT has to be an integral part of the uh, students curriculum and uh, USCIS frequently um, frequently looks to see if it, it is playing that important role, and it's uh, integral to the student's study. Uh, while on CPT or OPT, um, USCIS is looking to see whether the student is working in the field that's different from the field of study, um, even if uh, there is authorization by either the school in, uh, in the CPT situation or by USCIS for OPT. And then, um, the, uh, uh, one of the uh, fewer problems these days is OPT and unemployment, but still very important to realize that you can only do 90 days of unemployment during the initial OPT and 120 days of unemployment uh, cumul- cumulatively during the first year and 17 months STEM extension. So those are most frequent problems that we've seen here. So that's quite a laundry list of
2: items. And when Mana was mentioning students' lack of knowledge on immigration laws, we want to make it clear that we're dealing, we understand, with brilliant, smart, highly educated students who are traveling across the globe or you know, clearly bright and knowledgeable in your subject area. I know that I would not be able to understand most of the issues each of you is dealing with. But with respect to F1 issues, most immigration lawyers also don't have the level of knowledge. And a lot of DSOs or international student advisors actually don't completely understand the issues because they're juggling so many different issues at the university. And so they end up Sending the application incompletely or incorrectly, or don't not sending it on time, causing a lot of your problems. So if there's delays and gaps in status, along with the issues that Anna just went over, it can cause obviously grave problems for your life and your status in the U.S. as an F1 student. So if I can jump to you, Kevin, how do the F1 violations affect a student's future eligibility for immigration benefits?
1: Thank you, Sheila. Uh, Yeah, as as Anna had mentioned, there are a lot of different ways, you know, while you're a student attending class, if you get curricular practical training or work authorization after the completion of the degree, there are plenty of opportunities to fall out of status to create a, a status violation. And those status violations can have real consequences for those who are trying to transition to get other immigration benefits down the road. So the general rule is that one cannot change their status or extend their status, for that matter, if they're not currently maintaining status. And the list that Anna had mentioned in passing here are all the variety of ways that USCIS could potentially make a finding that a student has not maintained their non-immigrant status. If If the USCIS does make a finding that the person has failed to maintain status, whether because, you know, dropping the course load or taking CPT prematurely, even if the DSO authorizes it, um, USCIS could interpret it nevertheless to be a status violation. That could cause that person to start to accrue unlawful presence in the United States. So, Not only will you have complications trying to change your status, like transition to H-1B, without having to apply for a, a visa abroad, but you could also be accruing unlawful presence and lose the ability to work, like the remaining CPT or OPT time. So. These status violations, uh, to the extent that they, they can be prevented, the student needs to be super diligent, even more diligent than the diligence that they perceive from the DSOs uh, to make sure that they're maintaining the terms and conditions of that F1 status. And seeking immigra- uh, an immigration attorney's advice on that is better than just relying on uh, DSO, particularly in uh, some schools more so than others.
2: Yeah, and I know that Kevin has thrown out a lot of different terms like maintenance of status, failure to maintain status, unlawful presence. Although all of these sound like they're connected, each of these is quite different from a legal point of view. It's very technical. Uh, For example, a student that fails to maintain classes or go to class may have fallen out of status and therefore cannot get an extension, but may not necessarily have become unlawfully present or accrued unlawful presence, what we call ULP, for the three-year and 10-year bars to re-enter the U.S. So I know we're talking fast, and I realize many of you don't completely understand these issues. Many of them are available. Details of it on different FAQs and articles that we have written on Murti.com, As I tell people all the time, we spend thousands and thousands of dollars each week in attorney time to write articles and to share valuable information with you all because we realize we all were students at one time and poor and broke, and so we don't want you to have to spend money on every issue. So understand the basics, understand the overview of what your the you know the questions, so that when an attorney uh, you know explains issues to you, you actually completely. Understand or better appreciate what's going on.
1: Uh, one thing I'll say, Sheila, about the distinction between you know falling out of status versus accruing unlawful presence—that I think is a critical distinction for students in particular—is um, you know, yeah, you, you could fall out of status by reducing your course load or taking CPT at a time that you're not permitted to do so. That might be a status violation, but it only becomes unlawful presence if USCIS makes a finding that that person was not maintaining their status. So uh, maybe it's the difference between speeding and then getting pulled over for speeding. Maybe it's the distinction between a status violation and unlawful presence. I think that's a critical distinction that's um, unique to students. So maybe that would be a helpful guide.
2: Right, right. So the reason we're mentioning all this is as we're speaking quickly, we don't want you to say, oh yeah, those are two terms and they're interchangeable because they're not interchangeable. So I know we touched briefly upon maintaining a full course load and possible exceptions so just by way of background f1 students should maintain a full course load at all times this usually means 12 credit hours if you're an undergraduate student doing your bachelor's degree and nine hours for graduate programs or graduate academic study however this can vary depending on the school so, Anna, do you want to explain a little bit about what exactly and why this could vary
0: depending on the school? Sure. Um, nine credit hours is what uh, for graduate students is is what most schools require. However, there are schools that require only six hours, and uh, students would not violate their status if they're taking six hours um, or more so six hours would be the minimum that they would need to take other schools would not allow that and their policy would be nine hours would be the minimum so it's very important to check with your DSO your designated school official not just your academic department what the requirements are uh, because you may very well be uh, going to a school that requires six hours and or nine hours and you assume that six hours would be sufficient, which is not. And one of the most common scenarios is when a student completes most of their program requirements and they are now in their last term last semester and they only have to complete three hours. There is no reason for them to take more than three hours. Classwork. In that case, they can still do that, but they still need authorization from their DSO to be maintaining full uh, course load. It's kind of counterintuitive because your academic department may still allow you to take only three hours or one class or, or whatever three hours translates into. But uh, you need to check with your DSO, and you need to obtain permission before you enroll in just those three-hour uh, credit credits.
1: Anna, how about uh, do you ever have a question about what if my school has more than just uh, two semesters in a in a year and and full maintaining a full course load when there are three or more semesters in the academic year for that particular school?
0: Well, you need to maintain full course load each term. So if you have to be maintaining uh, status based on six credit hours that would apply to each trimester or uh, quarter or semester whatever your school operate, uh, operates based on and there are some other uh, exceptions to full-time study but um, they are very rare and USCIS is aware uh, they they include medical leave or Uh, Dropping below full coursework because because you have a medical issue, it's still possible to be considered to be a full-time student if you take a medical leave. But go to your DSO, talk to your DSO, explain. You will probably need a note from your doctor to um, support your request for dropping below uh, full course load, and the DSO. Uh, should be able to authorize uh, the drop in below cu- uh, full coursework then it will not become a problem
1: yeah and I think another scenario that sometimes we see is when uh, the student is on using f- uh, curricular practical training uh, full-time CPT that the school considers to be compliant with maintaining a full course of study even though the student is uh, not receiving academic credit for that full-time uh, uh, equating to a full-time Enrollment when you count the whatever the credit is being received for the CPT class. So, um, again, I think the the main thing to always keep in mind is to uh, confirm with the DSO, confirm that you're maintaining what the school's overall general requirements are for maintaining a full course of study, and when in doubt, to make sure that the DSO is providing the correct guidance and it's consistent with what the school's guidance is for, for maintaining the full study.
0: And with regard to CPT, Kevin, um, you are absolutely correct. Even if you are doing CPT full-time and you register it only for one credit hour, for example, the school may still consider it to be full-time study, full-time coursework, and that may still be okay, but you you need to check with your school and make sure that it's considered for all students, including U.S. students, to be full-time study when they're enrolled in practical training. Okay,
2: so now let's jump to the next issue which is online because that's been a subject of a lot of debate recently and created major problems for students when some universities have agreed to allow students to take a lot of online courses by allowing the student to live in a different state or a different region of the country, et cetera. So F1 status violations uh, are prohibitively high when classes are taken online. Pursuant to the regulation, no more than one online class, not exceeding three credits, can be taken during each academic term. In the recent past, the government started, as I mentioned, paying a lot of attention to this particular issue. And this is a frequent problem for students who have attended a school which the USCIS considers to be more of a problem school. Anna, what are the kinds of issues that we're looking at and finding with online classes
0: that's a very interesting issue because we live in such technologically advanced world it's exciting what technology can do uh, but unfortunately uh, that does not serve very well uh, foreign national students who are taking online classes or simulcast classes, where the uh, professor or instructor appears via Skype, and they may appear on a big screen in a room where students go to. It may be on campus, maybe off campus. So there are various, um, various modes of what online classwork can. Um, can be uh, in a uh, manner in, in which this online uh, instruction can uh, can be given. But uh, the bottom line is, and the rule of thumb I would say, is that if the students and the instructor are not together during the class, then USCS will probably consider it to be a problem. And um, that would be considered to be an online coursework that would be prohibited. Above three credit hours prohibited each um, term.
1: And when you say together, you mean physically under one roof.
0: Physically under Mm -hmm. one roof, not uh, instructor appearing on a big screen, and not uh, online coursework where you can do, you can give uh, assignments or you can uh, submit your work, uh, you know, at the time convenient for you. So uh, traditional classwork. Is what what is considered to be safe? Anything other than that would be so. Skype is out of on- question. Skype is considered sort of online more than. Skype is considered online, and I think logically speaking, F1 status is given to students to be physically present in the U.S. If you are uh, appearing via Skype, you can do it from any other country in the world. So and that is the
2: government's reasoning and logic, which makes perfect sense. So it's not something we're excited to learn about if you're taking online classes. But from the government's perspective, you could do that from India or the United Kingdom or Australia. You don't need to be here if you're an F1 student uh, because you're requesting permission to come and study at a university, at an accredited university in the United States. So if you can do it by Skype, you could do it from India. You don't need to come here on F1 status. Let's jump to CPT and OPT. We've mentioned those terms quite a bit in the first 10-15 minutes that we've been going over this overview now. So when can they be authorized? Kevin...
1: A uh, CPT and OPT both uh, can be authorized only after the a student has completed a full academic year of full-time study. Is uh, is the general rule. I think we should focus on CPT for a little bit. Uh, a little bit. I think a lot of listeners would be interested in that because one of the most notable exceptions to the one-year rule it, for CPT is that you can do immediate participation in CPT or curricular practical training. If the graduate, if the program requires immediate participation and it's an integral part of the uh, course of study, so uh, the one-year requirement doesn't mean also that the student must be in F-1 status that entire year. Legacy INS policy, the agency that came before USCIS, allows for completion of the one-year full-time enrollment in full-time academic study requirement if you are in another status, like H-4 uh, uh, dependent dependents of H-1B workers in H-4 status have the capacity to go to go to school full-time, so their time in H-4 status completing the one year can count towards meeting that one-year requirement. But I think the other one that comes up a little bit more commonly is this exception that allows for immediate participation in CPT if it's a required integral part of the program. Um, Anna, I think you've had a lot of experience in dealing with that issue, right?
0: Yes, and one other exception that students uh, sometimes don't realize that they have this wonderful option when, uh, for example, when you go uh, to one program and you have at least one year and you transfer to a different program of study, you can do cpt because there was no break uh in between so you've continuously maintained f1 status and you've you've already had one year of full-time study then you c- it's possible to be um authorized for cpt properly in the first year of your new program of study just because there was no interruption uh, uh, between the first program and the second program. So even if the
1: program changes, it's fine?
0: It, that's fine. Right. So you're saying if somebody was, did you say, on F2 or
2: H4 and they did one year of pro- program study, that could still be counted and then they do the second year on it by changing status to F1, that they might potentially
0: be eligible for CPT? As long as you are in F1 status at the time of authorization, and as long as you've had one full year of study, doesn't matter in which status, then that would can be considered not to be in the first year.
1: Right. So if I did the first semester in H4 status, and then my second semester I transitioned to F1, I would only have to wait until the completion of that second semester to meet That's the one-year requirement for the CPT.
2: Hmm, interesting so these are the little things to keep in mind and what are the other
0: common fit pitfalls with regard to CPT Anna the most common one uh, when uh, which USCIS is very aware of and they are looking for uh, all of the evidence to show that CPT is an integral part of an established curriculum unfortunately there is no definition in the law um, of what integral actually means so I've seen in the last few months I would say I've seen USC's using a dictionary definition of the word integral which is improper and inappropriate in this context because SVP has provided its own guidance on what it means even though um, regulations don't define it and there are two types of guidance that um, these schools um, are, all the schools um, adopt and the first group of schools says that cpt can only be a required type of training for the completion of the program of study in other words if the program of study doesn't say you need to enroll in practical training uh, in order to complete your degree and only in that case cpt can be authorized that's the first group of schools and the second group of schools says that cpt can either be required by the program or the training for which the student receives credit. So in other words, if the school allow the student to register uh, his or her practical training for academic credit, that will also satisfy the uh, requirement of being integral part of an established curriculum. Um, Then there are, of course, some problem schools that don't adhere to any specific policy and that's where uh, you as a student would need to be really careful because even though you may receive authorization from your DSO, USCS um, may still find that CPT was not an integral part of your established curriculum.
1: Yeah, I've actually, I think I've had a couple of cases where uh, the student did receive academic credit and, you know, got the recommendation from the DSO. But because I think USCIS adopted your uh, the first interpretation that you're talking about, Anna, that it has to be required. Uh, and uh, regardless of whether there's a credit uh, component to it, it must be required. And in that case, USCIS decided it wasn't required, even though there was academic credit and the DSO signed off on it.
0: That's correct. Uh, yeah, the, the rules are all over the place, and USCS doesn't have a very um, established way of looking at this particular problem. So, you need to be extremely careful to um, discuss and discuss this issue with your DSO before engaging in any CPT training.
1: Yeah, it seems like if they don't like the school, they'll go with the ter- interpretation number one, and if the school's not really on their radar, they may be okay with interpretation number two, which is kind of confusing for people to, you know, and students rely, their careers and their livelihood re- rely on these interpretations. So. Well,
2: and CPD has indicated, uh, sorry, SEVP has indicated that it will issue some kind of guidance on the interpretation of both CPT and OPT, uh, some type of regulation, and hopefully, SEVP's uh, regulation will be more Timely than USCIS regular promise of issuing regulation, which is sometimes 10 or 12 years backed up. I think SEPP has l- luckily has a slightly better reputation for being more diligent. So we all need to stay tuned for more information on that. Let's go into a little bit more details with respect to the CPT and OPT position to determine if it is directly related to the student's program of study. Um, The USCIS is likely to scrutinize the CPT and OPT positions and request that the student prove how and why it is directly related to his or her field of study, especially if the documentation does not clearly establish this fact.
1: Yeah, uh, Sheila. We get a lot of phone calls from students who uh, have been asked by USCIS to show proof, specific proof that there is a direct relationship between the program of study that, uh, that for the degree and the job that they're uh, th- that they're performing. So, like when in the OPT context, when they're applying for the for the OPT, we see that or OPT extension, we'll see that, and in the CPT context too. And I think a common um, fact pattern that we see where that I think USCIS is picking up on involves a student who held let's say a student held an OPT position that was directly related to uh, that person's degree and now they transfer to a different academic program but the position that they're holding uh, that the job that they're holding that they're now author- authorized for for a CPT with the new academic program mm-hmm. is the same position so uh, you know, let's say for example, someone had a degree in information technology and working on OPT as a uh, computer programmer or a software analyst type of position, and then they transfer to a new program. Let's say it's an MBA, maybe even it's an MBA with an IT concentration. Uh, but and then in that situation, the new DSO may have issued CPT for this for this position, this very same position. USCIS is going to look at that and say, well, how how is the computer engineer position directly related or the computer uh, programmer position directly related to the MBA program. Again, even if there's that IT concentration because the core curriculum relates to business administration.
0: Kevin, and it sounds very complicated, but I think there is a very simple way to determine whether you will have a problem with this particular issue. In general terms, if your program of study does not typically prepare one for a professional career in the field of your CPT or OPT, then that's going to be a problem. Okay.
1: I think the way the best way I heard it was that the uh, the curriculum needs to be a part of the training. The training shouldn't be a part of the curriculum. So. Um, so I'm sorry, no, the, 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 the training should be a part of the curriculum, not the, way, not the other way around. So if, if the work authorization, I think, is being designed around the, the curriculum itself, that's, that, uh, or if it looks that way, that's the problem, I think, that USCIS is cracking down on. And, and unfortunately, there are schools out there that have a bit of a reputation for uh, going that direction.
2: Well, okay. So we try to make most of these conferences about 30 to 45 minutes. We're at the 30-minute mark right now, and we should be done in about 10 minutes. So I want those of you who are watching your clock or running or getting late, just so you get a feel, we should be done in, in 5 to 10 minutes from now, hopefully. Um, the next issue we want to touch upon is the common status issues related to OPT specifically. For example, the student cannot accrue more than 90 days of unemployment while on the initial OPT and 120 days of unemployment during both the initial OPT and the 17-month STEM extension. I think we touched upon this briefly before as well. However, the unemployment itself does not start until the EAD has been issued. So I guess that's the, the delay of the government can actually benefit you as a student.
0: And we frequently get phone calls from people who applied for OPT, for example, and now they are past the requested start date and they're very worried about exceeding in the future exceeding their ninety day um, limitation. And what It is important for them to understand exactly what you just said, Sheila. It's not not going to be a problem. That's not going to be added to whatever unemployment they will accrue in the future, because that's the government taking action on your application. So you cannot be at fault uh, for not being engaged in employment, for which you haven't even been authorized. So that's not going to be a problem. Uh, About one year ago, uh, the Nebraska Service Center started denying applications um, with regard to 90-day unemployment where students were engaged in um, some kind of unpaid internship or volunteered, and then they uh, changed their position again and said that uh, unpaid employment should be fine too and should not be counted against 90 or Um, 90 or 120-day unemployment maximum, but you need to also remember that uh, this unpaid position should be something that does not violate um, labor laws. So, in other words, if it's a position for which you would normally expect uh, to be paid, then that's probably going to be in violation of the labor law, and that's probably going to be considered to be unemployment.
2: Interesting. And so then they request voluminous documentation showing proof of the sort of employment. So as an employee, as a student going through the all of these gazillion issues that trouble them, Kevin, what are the best ways to avoid many of these common pitfalls?
1: Yeah, we've been talking about a lot of uh, the nuances of a lot of different issues, and I think the critical thing, the starting point for a student starting their academic journey is to, as we said before, uh, enroll in a reputable university or college that's uh, accredited and has a reputation, uh, a good reputation. Um, Unfortunately, a lot of students are relying on, uh, you know, schools that have a reputation for giving CPT out in in a more liberal way. And USCIS and and the consulates even abroad are identifying these schools as problem schools. But the the consequences, I think, ultimately uh, have been falling on the students. So I think the students need to be proactive in um, selecting the school as the starting point. You know, there are going to be these issues that can potentially come up. um, But starting with the right school, I think, is critical. And also not just relying on advice from DSOs. DSOs in a lot of different schools and present company included when Ana was a DSO, very knowledgeable people and know their stuff, but not, you don't get the same results with everyone, and certain schools um, have a tougher time with that than others. Um, schools have, uh, should already have in place policies and literature about CPT and OPT and an international office for uh, already existing resources for, that students can use as a guide. So if you're going to a university or, or an academic institution that doesn't have that kind of stuff in place, there might be a reason why.
0: Kevin, that's a very good advice, and we cannot stress enough how important it is to do your own research to avoid bad schools, not to rely on the advice um, that you receive from the DSO alone, and I'm not saying that you shouldn't rely on it. Um, at all. But what I'm saying is that if a DSO makes a mistake, then USCIS may still deny your case, even though you are completely not at fault. And it wasn't your decision to do something in a particular way. You do need to do your own research and your future is in your own hands. Yeah. But, you know, like at the end of the day, let's not
2: forget the big part of the reason that a lot of students end up going to schools that are not the Harvards and the Yales and the Cornells is partially because of not getting admission, because of English language, because of tuition fees, costs, expenses. All of these factors from a practical point of view are extremely important. It's easy for us to say, well, go to the best schools in the country, go to accredited schools, but somebody who's uh, you know, an accredited school may charge i don't know twenty five thousand or forty thousand or fifty thousand for one year academic program. these other schools may charge ten thousand and promise them online courses and promise them work you know cpt from day one. What we're telling you is that we understand that there's practical considerations, but we want you to be mindful and careful because in the end of the day at the end of the day, You it's not like, okay. I'm saving instead of a fifty thousand dollars per year school, I'm saving forty thousand in the tuition by paying only ten thousand. You may be wasting ten thousand dollars if the USCIS or SEVP do not recognize it or the school is considered, you know, improper or incorrect. So we just want you to keep that in mind when you're making decisions, because these are very important decisions for you and your family, because it's probably your lifetime savings or your parents' lifetime savings that you're investing by coming to the United States and living your great American dream. So um, with that, I do want to again remind you on behalf of myself, Sheila Murthy, and Anna Stepanova and Kevin Andrews, we thank you for joining us for today's first in a three-part series on F1 issues. We certainly hope you find this information helpful uh, to understand what are the different options and risks. As I said, this is first part is an overview. The second part deals with CPT and maintenance of status issues. And the third part will deal with um, transition to H-1B issues and OPT in greater detail. So knowledge and experience in success, uh, Murthy Law Firm certainly has the knowledge and experience in successfully dealing with RFEs and other issues dealing with F1 students, when, unfortunately, DSOs make mistakes or SEVP makes an error, and how we can help you to transition from F1 to H1B. Thank you once again for joining us. We wish you much success in your F1 program, and we at the Murthy Law Firm and the entire Murthy Law Firm staff look forward to continuing to mentor you and guide you as you make very, very important decisions in your life. Thank you so much.